Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Bram Retta. EdTech is common in EIS and VCD funds, but still not quite in the mainstream. In today's podcast, we get Matthew O'Kane to talk about the area a bit. He dives into a case study of a recent exit and contrasts it with a less successful investment to draw out some lessons learned. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all the podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today, I'm delighted to welcome back Matthew Kane, who is Managing Director of Nexus Investment Ventures. Welcome back to the podcast, Matthew. Hello, Brian. Very nice to talk to you again, some two years or so since we originally yeah. chatted. Yes, it's way back on episode four that we had you on. Well, I can't promise that I've listened to all the 53 in between, but I've certainly enjoyed listening to some of them. It's, um, it's a great initiative you're running. Thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say so. So we have grown our listener base somewhat since you were on last time. So some people I'm sure have excellent memories and remember all about you. But for, the, for those who don't, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became an EIS fund manager? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So um, a bit about myself. So I qualified as a chartered accountant with one of the big four firms quite a long time ago now, probably 20 years ago or something. Um, spent time at PW, also latterly at Deloitte. I did spend a bit of time with um, specialist media, early stage stroke tax efficient investment group earlier on in my career. But the kind of key point really that led to me becoming a specialist, early, I call it early stage venture investor brackets that happens to understand and therefore focus around EIS type investing, close brackets, is that in 2012, I was seconded by Deloitte, who I was working for as a tax specialist at the time, to a private equity group called Bridgepoint. And I sat within Bridgepoint's offices for the best part of 12 months, covering for a lady who uh, was on maternity leave at the time. And they are what they call themselves a lower mid-market private equity investor. They they are they are in a different stratosphere from most of the VCT stroke EIS size of investing that is your core market really here on this podcast. Uh, but they are owners of business were owners of businesses like Pret a Manger. They are today owners of Burger King. And what I got to see when I was in Bridgepoint was essentially how it was the case that big successful private businesses, they don't fall from the sky. They don't fall from the sky fully formed, turning over tens or hundreds of millions of pounds, you know, making free cash flow. Actually, they've been through a whole world of sweat and growth in the early years from the founders, getting them up to a suitable scale to then attract investment and so on and so forth. And most of the private equity businesses that I was talking to then uh, in my role at Bridgepoint, you know, a founder was still involved. So, when I got the phone call in 2013, was I interested to meet Harry Hyman, who's a very successful entrepreneur in many fields. He's built a FTSE 250 business up to 2 billion of assets and so on, uh, to talk about whether or not it was the right time to specialize on entrepreneur-led EIS investment. I thought it was very interesting because what we wanted to do was to create a private equity style investment approach, but with the undercurrent and the protections afforded around EIS. And you may or may not know, but private equity benefits from certain tax advantages that are built into its structures. And every every five years or so, there's a big outcry in the business sections of the newspapers around why is it that private equity investors pay less tax per, per, pro rata than the cleaner in their offices. And all these things. Carry interest, base cost shift, all these kinds of things. However, what's interesting is they actually, in private equity world, don't necessarily avail of some of the government encouraged incentives that exist around the EIS space. If you're a private UK individual, I would argue that it's kind of more in keeping with the spirit of our country's attitude to entrepreneurialism and growth to be backing private companies through EIS funds or directly, rather than doing it through private equity type structures that usually route the money offshore before bringing it back. So that's our background or my background. And for the last eight years, Brian, I've personally invested into over 50 rounds, sorry, over 50 businesses, I would think, and probably in the region of 100 rounds of EIS investment. So I'm a, I suppose you could say, a prolific personal investor. And that naturally led on to running uh, the Nexus Investment Scale-Up Fund, which we've operated for about four years. And prior to that, we operated a deal-by-deal operation. So you mentioned Nexus there a couple of times. In case any listeners don't know, 
tell us a bit more about Nexus and who they are and what they do. Okay, no problem. So, so Nexus is is actually a really well kept secret, I think, in the world of sort of UK uh, private business. Um, Harry Hyman is a, a fellow chartered accountant who set up Nexus as his private group in the mid 1990s. He received backing from two high net worth shareholders, who themselves remain shareholders for about 25 years. But actually, now in 2022, it's a, a business that's controlled by the Hyman family. And it's best known for its interest in property. So it started a business called Primary Health Properties, PLC. It has publishing interests. Uh, it, it, it publishes uh, titles, education investor, health investor, and letterly nutrition investor. It has a corporate financial arm that specializes these days more so in uh, property and education. And then we have our ventures arm, which I would argue is a very natural evolution of any kind of private group of companies. And the Ventures Arm has uh, been involved in the region of approximately 12 to 15 million pounds worth of early stage investment activity into UK companies across four sectors that we do well uh, for the last eight years. Yeah. So you mentioned four sectors. When we had you last time, we spoke in a lot of detail about thematic investing and how you chose themes and, and whatever. So... You focus on, for memory, data, digital, education, and health, which are kind of big labels. And I thought it might be worth sort of catching up a little bit on how your thoughts have evolved over the last couple of years. And, and we're going to dig into these a little bit because you were, you were talking about how the progress you've made on some things. And, and I think there's some lessons that we, we can draw out from what you've been doing. So how, how have things been going for the last couple of years? Sure. I, okay. So when we last talked, I looked this up earlier. So when we last talked, we had a certain quantum of assets under management. And it's really interesting is that we've more than doubled those AUM in the last two years. Okay. So we've had a constant inflow of subscriptions from predominantly direct high net worth investors, although we're starting to grow out the distribution arm, which is why it's quite timely to have this conversation today. More advisors are starting to learn about what we've been able to achieve for them. I talked about the, the Nexus history. The Nexus history is entirely interwoven with those, as you say, big sectors of healthcare and education. So some of the things that we were predicting and seeing in our wider group work 10 years ago have started to come to pass. So, for example, the provision of remote medicine, the ability to be able to reorder prescriptions online rather than clog up the healthcare system uh, by reporting to your local doctor just to re receive a re-prescription, things like that. Uh, we were seeing the, the, the promise of those back in sort of 2012, 2013. And clearly that's become arguably de rigueur now. In the education sector, when we were talking two years ago, I think we were three or four months into the first lockdown. You know, talking from personal experience, my daughters, their school had then moved online. It was delivering its lessons through Teams. It was all a bit of a novelty, both for the children, but also for the teachers uh, as to how you can, you know, constructively day after day, hour after hour, run lessons for children in the ages of sort of five through to 13. We sit here today, Brian, I'm in an office uh -huh. uh, at Nexus on Haymarket in the centre of London, but we're doing this over Teams, no problem. And I would argue that even when I'm in place in work and when my children are in uh, in place in education, there is still as much as 50% of the business, possibly more. This is now conducted over video uh, and over digital links. And, you know, if you like, that has been our story of what we have seen over the last two years. We have increased the number of companies that we hold in our EIS scale-up fund from 10 at the time that I think you and I last spoke to 16. And we're all being well, just about to add a 17th. The 17th is a business that's in the virtual reality space and is involved in education and training. Uh -huh. Okay. Even two and a half years ago, two years ago, I would have argued that most people would have still been somewhat sceptical about whether or not back in, when was that, mid-2020, there would be need to be a demand from large corporates to be able to deliver training remotely to their staff in the fields of soft skills and so on. August 2022, it's just taken as a given that the biggest organisations are constantly now having to think about ways they can invest in their staff, not just getting them away for an away day, or getting them together for a training day, 
but actually how to imbue things like soft skills into the culture of an organization when so many people now operate within large businesses remotely on different days of the week and so on and so forth. So it's been a great two years in terms of proving out some of the points that we were talking about two years ago, but we Nexus were thinking about mm-hmm. eight to 10 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting there in EdTech, you first, the first thing you pluck out is actually, co- you know, although you mentioned your kids, yeah. you've plucked out the corporate world because I think EdTech for a long time has had a reputation about being a difficult market because the predominant suppliers of education are schools. Schools yes. operate m- mostly within government ownership and the government contracts and buying and innovation then becomes hard to adopt. Selling cycles become hard because they're tied to school years. And that's not to say people can't be successful, but it it makes selling into that market a challenge. Whereas you're plucking out the corporate market, which clearly works somewhat differently. Is, Is that something you've learned from experience? It is something we yes, it is something we've learned from experience because we now hold um five to seven or so companies either in our pre-fund portfolio or in our fund portfolio. Uh, and both of those, you know, if you if you visit the website we have, which we'll talk about later on probably at the end of the program, people can go on and see the wider portfolios that we backed over the last eight years or so. When we come on to talk about the successes that we've had and very large exit that we were fortunate to be able to achieve very recently for investors, it was from an edtech business. It's an edtech business that arguably has very little direct interaction with schools and certainly has, I would suggest, zero interaction with schools in the United Kingdom. And that's our success story that I'm going to talk about in due course. If I look at our other portfolio members that are under the EdTech label, only one of those, I bet it's not really fair of me to go into the detail of the one that has, in my view, so far failed to capitalise on its opportunity because it's not reasonable for the company concerned. But I can allude to some of the challenges that they've had. So if I go to the, we talked about, there's going to be the extreme of the really successful one, the four or five in the middle that are doing very well, and the one that hasn't yet delivered. Uh The one that hasn't yet delivered is the only one of those six or seven whose focus has been from day one trying to sell its product into schools. And in particular, has always thought that it could become the the product of choice for UK schools in the primary space. So in answer to your question, corporate is just one of the multiple uh, markets that exist out there that have only very loose and tenuous connections with the schools market that you and all of us, I think, think of when we initially think of, well, if you're talking about education, you're going to talk about technology, you're going to talk about education, technology in school. Uh-uh. So we've got one that does um, for kindergarten age children and sells to their parents and through partnerships with the likes of the Times of India, uh, the likes of Bright Horizon nursery chain in the United States. We've got one that makes or has made its money historically through selling to the likes of Pearson in the United States and to governments in places like Singapore and the United Arab Emirates. We've got one, we've got one that I touched on that we're hopefully going to be involved with very soon, which is in the corporate space. We've got one that is for lifelong learners. So this could be yourself or myself, where we would actually buy products, training courses at any age of life because we want to learn about something specific as curated and, uh, and taught by a world leading expert. Uh, We've got one that does coding and robotics that actually sells through partnerships with various charitable institutions in the United States and elsewhere. We don't tend to favor businesses where they're gonna have to go through the pain that is generally involved in a prolonged sales cycle, selling into schools directly and particularly in the UK schools. Everything that you said, is absolutely spot on as to why it's very hard to scale school-facing businesses in edtech. But my goodness, Brian, international edtech businesses who've worked that out, based in the UK, but selling internationally, there is, in our view and our experience, not just tremendous potential, but actually they are starting to deliver on that potential. And I think the UK could make a name for itself even more than it currently does as a provider of the very best innovative UK education solutions for the for global teaching very soon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the UK already has a good reputation for 
education generally, um, whether that's in some places, I'm not sure if that's quite as well deserved as it should be. But you know, there's certainly our bits of the UK education system are, are fantastic. An um, influx of students, Brian. You know, yeah. anyone who peels back the onion, the metaphorical onion on the university system, and and understands the financial structure of universities in the UK, and indeed sixth form colleges and private schools and public schools, is exactly what you've described. But it's the influx of families and, and students wanting a uk style education and the quality of it this is about how can you export that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so you mentioned that you had a successful exit so it's probably worthwhile digging into that about what happened with that and and clearly success doesn't always come without or rarely comes without some challenges along the way do you want to tell us a bit about that and, and then kind of what you have learned from this process yeah, sure. I mean, you know, please do interject. So, you know, in terms of your general audience of listeners, um, this is perhaps going to be more so a story that might have some resonance, I would hope, with the IFA and the wealth management community. Often one of the questions we get asked as to all fund managers is, you know, well, wh- 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 what about exits and when are you going to have an exit and why can't you show me that you're going to have exits? So I'm going to tell you a quick story about business where two founders walked into meet us in March 2014. And one of them had formerly been at the BBC and had been involved in launching the iPlayer. And one of them had worked at ITN Strategy Consulting and ITN Digital and had been involved in the rights, the rights media world. And they had a uh, an idea that they could start a company that would create the world's best and biggest library of video clips for use and licensing in education. And there were a couple of drivers for this. One was that they, in their professional lives, had had a lot of involvement with the big owners of content, uh-huh. so the Getty, Getty images and the BBCs of the world and so on and so forth, and, and had spotted that those big owners of media content generally weren't paying much attention to education as a revenue stream because it was a relatively tiny revenue stream uh-huh. in their eyes compared to the profits ultimately that they could earn from selling clips to using TV shows and in other media. These guys thought actually their education is going to become more and more digitized going forward. And in particular, they and one of them had four children at the time and had seen that his child, who was now maybe 15, 16, was not really getting a very different digital stroke video centered learning experience to his youngest child who by this stage was age four or five. So to put it another way, in about 10 years of seeing children go through the schooling system, he hadn't really seen any evidence of using TV, tele, video in a way much different from what possibly Brian, you, myself <laughs> and others are, are, you know, gilded generation and age. We, Yeah, I still remember people wheeling a television into a room as a child at school. I remember right? that too. On the last day of term, you know, you or I might be in the people wheeling it in, I don't know. But the point was that, you know, that was it once a year. Well, it ain't that much different, right? Going back 10 years, it was pretty poor. So you then step back again. What did we do? So next myself, Harry, Hyman, some others were the first names on the term sheet and investing into this particular business. So, so, right? so just to rewind a little bit. So the idea is Sorry. this company is got a library of video clips. And if, say, I was, whether as an individual or as a corporate, wanted to create a training course, I would come along and say, okay, you've got this, I'm creating a training course, you've got this library, that clip fits with what I'm using. And that could be either entertainment, or it could be someone actually delivering a training type thing. Possibly. So I'll go a bit deeper. This is kind of why it's quite interesting. You might be Pearson and you might have a hundred authors all around the world whose job it is to create what were once upon a time paper books, Uh right? Textbooks to aid with the teaching of a course on English language that was going to be delivered to Vietnamese students, let's say. And one of the things that you've realized is if I'm creating books, I'm no longer going to be creating textbooks, physical books in future. I'm going to be, this is step back in time seven or eight years, but yeah, I know I'm going to be doing ebooks in future. And if I'm going to do ebooks, I'm probably going to need moving images, or rather, I'm going to favor moving images to illustrate the points that I'm including in this book more so than still photos. To give the example of my life at the time, my then three year old would happily walk up to our TV and start prodding it with her finger because she didn't really understand if it was on pause or it was a still image. She didn't really understand why it just didn't start moving because if she was on a tablet and it generally would move with video. So the, the key bit that was interesting, though, Brian, is 
I'll use your analogy. Let's say you're doing a corporate training scheme. Actually, you don't really want a clip that's 20 minutes long that someone like in the open university days, if remember that, you know, one o'clock in the morning They're in the still UK. There. They're still there for those who want it. That's right. You don't really want someone standing there lecturing you. What you want in this day and age is some way to incorporate existing video and TV footage in a way that illustrates a point and brings it to life for the child at the back of the class. So they would use this example of a Felix Baumgarten and the Red Bull jump stroke Red Bull challenge where they went as high as you possibly go in stratosphere and then dropped out. That would be a way to illustrate terminal velocity, mm -hmm. real life work and a real life example that excites the kids. But and this is where they were, I thought, very clever. Two things. One was they got together all of the best owners of content and essentially did a deal that that content would be licensable in one place through one platform. Because if you're Pearson, what you didn't want to have to do is go and negotiate with five or six different content owners to find out who owns the content of the Red Bull Leap and how do I negotiate? You don't want to negotiate more than once. You want to do one negotiation, agree a rights rate, and then access your content from one place. And second thing that was quite interesting that they did is they basically tagged the meta content. Even in those days, there was an expression meta, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they say this is not you know, Mark Zuckerberg territory. But he's renowned for stealing things that already exist. Oh, so well, there you go. Uh, yeah, no, well, that's very different from this environment. But essentially, if you are an author and you are now, let's say you're not a person, let's say you work for the Singapore Ministry of Education and you pride yourselves as a country on having the most progressive educational curriculum of digitized learning materials in the world because that's the way that you mark yourself out and consider yourselves a progressive company a country sorry you are there and you think to yourself well i know my way around my curriculum i want to search for the best possible content that's video enabled that i could include in my materials so what matters as much is to be able to create the equivalent of a google style search approach that is where again this business was very innovative and progressive because what they essentially did is they uploaded the libraries of content that they'd done the deals with all the content owners but then they made it searchable by relevant keywords that would link into curriculum so if you're looking for whatever key stage a relevant key stage for physics for teaching the concept of terminal velocity when you search it's quite exciting when actually it comes up with 30 second video clip of you know felix baumgarten that's actually aha uh -huh. That's going to connect with the 13-year-olds at the back row of the class who are the ones I really struggle to connect with ordinarily, yeah, because different people have different learning styles. So that was the that was the concept. Yeah. Now, i got to tell you, Brian, because I work closely with that company as their first investor director, uh, representing all of the investors who joined the seed and the seed B and the seed C rounds and so on. They, you know, the expressions kiss a lot of frogs. My goodness, they kissed a lot of frogs, especially in the last, uh, sorry, in the first two or three years of that business. Pretty much every larger EIS fund or VCT fund thought maybe interesting, but turned them down. Pretty much every single one of those, as part of their diligence process, put a phone call in to people that they knew senior at places like OUP, CUP, and other UK based publishing arms. And kind of in every case came back with the sort of the reply along the lines of, well, video might be interesting one day, but, you know, we're not really seeing it very much at this stage in 2014, 2015. You know, uh, very difficult, no, very difficult business model, you know, very hard to scale. No, not really, you know, a, a list of reasons not to do it. And if I had to kind of encapsulate some of the challenge in the UK world, in my view, is still there's a lot more reasons not to do something than to do it. Mm hmm. Well, I, th I think that's something I see a lot of ES managers doing is there's kind of two stages to diligence in the sense you have that triage stage where it's like, and really the idea is you're looking for excuses to reject things. You're saying, right, I've got this huge funnel of inflow. I can't look at 200 companies a month or whatever the figure is. I need to get that down to a volume I can manage. Some of you Silicon Valley's venture capitalists have this sort of wall of, here's the things we missed out on. Um, yeah. And, yeah, they just, and, you, and they just accept that's going to be. I, I, you accept it's going to be. But yeah, I'm going to come back to the, a, a key point, I believe. Right? I want to get this point across, hopefully, in this call. Is actually, the concept of scale in terms of fund funds and fund managers in this space, as seen by IFAs and wealth managers, is actually a, a, a false positive to think about for all the reasons you've talked about. If I was in a investment group 
and I had 30 people in my investment team and I was receiving 1,000, 6,000, 10,000 applications and pitches every year. It is, it is actually a paradox of that, that my team are going to spend more time finding reasons to reject things. And they're not really going to pay as much attention to the founders of the business, what their real background is, how they actually approach business. As someone like us is a much smaller fund manager, it, deliberately so. Because we actually, being myself and the people involved in running Nexus, we actually want to be involved in these businesses that we're selecting because we've got more than enough evidence over many years that that improves investor outcomes. And that is actually supposed to be the name of the game, obtaining as far as possible the best possible investor outcome. And actually, that becomes a challenge in this space because quite often when we're talking to advisors or advisors talking to us and asking about our fund and our business, they want to know what your assets and management are. They then start comparing you to funds that have been around for 40 years and do hundreds of different investment styles of which early stage is only one they've just recently come to in the last year or two. And rather than viewing a group like ours that's been doing it for eight years with our own money into hundreds of rounds, risking our own capital and saying, that's what I like to see, actually. They instead look at it sometimes and say, oh, well, your assets under management aren't very big. Or, well, could you cope with flow? And questions like that, which actually aren't the point of early stage investing. And we're very clear, we're early stage investors. So if I come back to this kind of example where we had the exit, so what then happened in this business was they, they set it up and after about 12 months, 18 months, they'd raise uh, two or three rounds of funding, totaled about 700, 800,000. But they hadn't yet landed the big contract that they needed to land in order to prove the case to be able to obtain Series A investment. They had all of these knockbacks from well-intentioned, supposedly wise UK investors who understood certain corporate worlds in the UK, but didn't really necessarily have the hinterland of the global ed edtech space and the global media and the global, which we didn't realise we did, but actually looking back on it, we obviously did. We obviously could see things beyond the hinterland mm -hmm. that others couldn't. Yeah. Is, is there an element of so, so, so when people saying it was just they didn't believe it was going to work in a foreseeable future, is it? You know, presumably part of it is also there's a two-sided market here in terms of the you know, two-sided markets. There's always a chicken and egg element. So that was part. Partly was they were viewing the UK market and assuming that that would be the first port of call for a business like this, and kind of the only port of call for the first few years. That's not the way of the world these days, particularly in EdTech, but also any business that can cross borders, okay, that involves the provision of content to multiple users. I mean, I'll come back to that with two or three of our other holdings later on. You can, you can, you can immediately be selling into all sorts of countries in the world. It's just, it kind of becomes irrelevant what's going on in small parts of the UK. The second part, you were quite right about the two-sided. There's also this belief that you have to have the perfect business model. If I'm going to give you money and it's VC and it's into a SaaS company and a platform, well, I'm expecting to see gross margins of 98% because that's either what I've learned from being successful in one or two SaaS businesses in the consumer space, or it's what I've learned at business school, or it's whatever. Someone's told me that, you know, that might be true, okay? At certain levels of the of the market, if you want to try and generate the best possible margin, of course, but it's always an illusion because when people talk about 98, 99% SaaS gross margins, they're not taking into account usually in that methodology, the number of bums on seats that they actually are going to have to pay to operate in this business in order to be able to scale it and provide post-sale services and customer services. And So my point is that business like the one I'm talking about that was doing a 50, 55% margin, the difference was it was a real margin because when they were generating that, it wasn't requiring them to then have, oh, crikey, we're going to need five customer success people to be able to service the contracts that we're entering into. Mm -hmm. A lot of it- So not, if we're saying start, the difference between gross and net was smaller. So, so, so if we think about breaking this down to revenue, gross profit, net profit, SaaS, you've got revenue and the gross profits close to net close because to you, the revenue, they, they but the net no profits much sales. lower. Whereas, they argue that the cost of sales is virtually zero, uh, and then it's sort of marketing costs and advertising costs and, and uh, staff costs and so yeah. on. The point is, how many of those costs are, are actually essential to you to ever being able to generate one sale? 
actually, in those sorts of cases that I'm talking about, it, it's nearly every occasion and it's nearly all of your cost base. You know, people talk about SEO costs and pay-per-click costs, and then they talk about them as if they're not a fundamental part of generating the sale. But at the same time, they say, well, the reason our sales might have dropped in the last six months is because we've not been investing so much money in P2C and our CAC's increased and so on and so forth. So anyway, I digress, <laughs> but it's just to give you an insight mm-hmm. into why it was that this business was, was finding it difficult to get mm-hmm. backing in the UK. Yeah. At the time. So what they managed to do eventually was land a contract with one of the biggest education publishers in the world. And how did they 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 do that? I mean, you mentioned for all that you say, oh, yeah, you can go overseas. Yeah. That's still not necessarily trivial because, you know, at the end of the day, you you have to go to the States. You have to knock, you know, for example, was it the States they got the contract in? It was ultimately in the States, but they didn't have to set up an office over there. What, What they were able to do and they had to do was they had to identify a very astutely a very a very small group of um, former employees and active participants in the US publishing world who had happened to set up a relatively small UK-US type consultancy operation, stroke investment operation, who were able to make introductions that actually follow through and deliver. And and that party got rewarded very well for the ultimate success, but it wasn't that that party was what won it. 100% what landed that contract ultimately was the belief that the customer had in the vision of the founder and their ability to do business and deliver on a business. And it's coming back to the fundamental point of what I think a group like Nexus is able to do. And we beat ourselves up sometimes about, oh, well, we're not small. We're sorry, we're not as big as this entity. We're not as big as that group. Uh-uh. Because actually what you're really doing is you're talent spotting. And I'm going to come back to that later, but you're talent spotting a certain category of entrepreneurial founder who doesn't just like the idea of owning their own business and running their own business, but actually has the firepower within their own makeup and their core, but also their experience of the world to actually become a business leader, a real leader, a proper leader that carries people. And some people ain't going to want to go along with them. A proper leader actually loses people along the way. That's one of the Mm -hmm. paradoxes of a proper leader because they're very clear on the vision of where they want to get to and not everyone can come on that journey. That's just how it's going to be. But that was the key differential. So so that that, that naturally raises a question because you know, when we speak about businesses, there's there's clearly some subjective and some objective elements, and your know, finances tend to be fairly objective, at least historically. You know, futures maybe. Yeah. But when it comes to assessing, you've you, you've got a founder. Inevitably, there's a degree of subjectivity. How did you or what did you see? How did you see what you thought you needed in these guys? A real tenacity to try and get the best result in in almost every single contractual discussion, whether small or large. And how did you identify that at the very start? Because you're saying they come with an idea, they've got a business career that they've they've done, but... The way they verbalise their CV, Mm. there's a difference between verbalising a CV versus whatever's written on a piece of paper. Uh And the the way that they anecdotally demonstrated that they'd been involved, and this was both of the people who were involved at the start, but particularly the chap who then continued to go on and on it, because it's going to come on to after 18 months, one of the things was that the co-founder decided they wanted to move on and do something different. So it's a very, very difficult situation to deal with, both for the one leaving, of course, but more so, I would argue, for the one who's staying, because essentially it's kind of akin to a semi-divorce going on, right? And it's not an easy situation to be in. It's kind of like, I'm being left to get on with this now. Uh, bloody hell, yeah, excuse my French, but, you know, kind of like, how on earth am I going to be able to, can I really do this? Can I really continue with this? This isn't hard, and we haven't yet landed this big contract that we know we need to run our land to be able to get to the next stage and the next milestone. But, you know, the point was, you're looking for people, and they may have been in a corporate environment in terms of who paid them, but they ideally have been part of that what I call the thrusting, progressive, move-forward parts of organisations. And... Brian, you can you you know when you're talking to people in that vanguard, you know because they're not just saying I really like the idea of growing this, and I think we and then they they don't talk, they don't talk hypothetics, they talk specifics of things they've been involved with. So, for example, the guy who led this business had been something like the third or fifth employee of Channel Five. Now that means nothing outside of the UK, and it means nothing below a certain age. 
but I still remember the day that that channel launched, all right, uh, in the mid-1990s. And at that stage, Spice Girls were a big deal. So I think they were involved in the launch or something. So you know that that person's been involved and witnessed to an environment when they were in that role, okay, which was all about, it's not so much, oh, reasons we can't do this. It's, we're going to do this. And essentially, we're going to scrap until we're able to achieve what it is that we've set out to do. And that's a fundamental part of the makeup of, of the good fans we bad. And this was demonstrated in this company because what then happened was that person managed to persevere. There's a video on our website where they say, fortunately, that person is very kind about Nexus and indirectly myself and Harry and those of us here. And he essentially says he was clear when we shot the video in 2018, so four years later, he was clear that were it not for Nexus, his business would not have been where it was today in 2018. Well, here we are in 2022, you know, and it sold a majority stake to one of the most preeminent US-based private equity investment groups who only invest in education businesses that they believe they can become half a million, half a billion, billion dollar concerns. And so you go through that process, you, you support those founders as best you can. Sometimes it's capital. More often, it's almost like neurological or counselling services, actually. But it's enabling them to do the best they can do to keep building their business and deliver on what's achievable. And I'll say it again, if there's a global market that you can genuinely tap into through careful partnerships and well-considered activity that involves jumping on planes, it involves going, ah, oh, what? There's a possible meeting in Toronto. It might be a long shot. I'm going to go. And in this day and age, you can do some of that over video and remote. But essentially, if you meet and you think it could be promising, you just get on the plane and go. You don't sit there wondering yourself, oh, whether or not we can make this work. And oh, dear, I've got to just you get on with it. And the best entrepreneurs just get on and do it. And we, I think we feel that we're not bad at identifying elements of that DNA in the people that we back. So this chap, anyway, built the business. Series A, money in, and so on. And then it's very interesting. So rewinding, you met your lover. You mentioned the divorce, as it were. And that thing, things like that kind of interest me because, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, they had this idea, generated this company, eight years later, fantastic exit. And we know it's the bumps along the way. And there's bumps along the way that in some ways are more interesting. And something like there's lots of companies where two co two co-founders one leaves the company basically stops dies whatever as a consequence you know so so presumably when you got that phone call or whatever saying you know this other guy's leaving you you would be like oh no um not not easy not easy but I suppose we proved the fact that these things could be navigated mm -hmm. and ultimately. So what did you actually do to help? And, you know, you mentioned some sort of support and nurturing. Presumably at that point you were like, okay, what can we do or, or what did you do? Well, a number of things, I suppose. We supported as far as we could both the parties in that particular process. But our first and foremost kind of, uh, what's the word, obligation was to the company. Uh -huh. And that's one of the, this is important. This is about actually operating as investors or advisors or board members or board observers of businesses in this sort of space, is understanding which hats you are wearing in different situations. Because guess what? There's huge potential to get, mistaken as to which hats the first and foremost uh, honor is to the company if you're in that environment aboard and so on and so forth so we were able to to steady the company they had just completed a small part of a funding round okay and then obviously obvious i say obviously because it's obvious when you're in that world there will then be a further part of that funding round <clears throat> that will then follow in due course so the first thing that we did as a group was we we made sure that the company then were updating immediately relevant documentation that was relevant for whenever the next funding discussion was going on. The, and, and that may sound so obvious, but it's kind of crucial. That's a classic sort of thing that gets missed by people, founders and so on. They, they don't think, oh, actually, we've got a legal obligation to make sure that we reflect them properly and so on and so forth, which, which they did. The second thing that were, was happening in that particular company was that they were on the cusp of potentially getting to some quite interesting contractual discussions. But how do you kind of approach that in terms of who's representing the company? So it had previously been one of the parties. So the second thing was to make it clear to the other, to the remaining founder, you have got to change how you approach 
your role in this business going forward. It's sort of non-negotiable that you are now going to have to be involved in, in this case, getting involved in operational fundraising, facing the customer, facing the investor more so than was happening because things were being divided previously. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. How, how many other people were there in, in, in the company at the time, roughly? I think there were probably five to ten people or something okay. like that. Yeah. So still time. really small. Yeah. Still really small, but big ramifications, therefore. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. But um, sorry, so the other key things that we were involved with was, you know, we helped them access capital. Uh, there was a period of time when they were in a position of waiting for, uh, they'd be waiting for a while for R&D tax credit claim to be approved or not approved. And so our group and, you know, the corporate group, this is rather than EIS investors or anything like that, assisted in terms of providing a short-term, you know, uh, working capital facility. It was only needed for a matter of weeks, but we're able to provide that for the business so that they could carry on with operating the business. And fast forward 18 months then, Brian, to when they were on the cusp of completing Series A, which is a three million investment round that was t- carried out and then got them really moving. There was a period of time when they needed to earn state bridge funding. So we really helped them in terms of advising them how they should go about approaching their shareholder base to potentially assist them with some short-term bridge funding, uh, which fortunately a number of shareholders were prepared to participate in. But how you price that, how you position that, how you explain the intricacies of that, the risks involved in that was a big part of what we did. The key thing really, Brian, is we decided we were prepared to get in and, and support as almost the wing the wing people, the wingmen of the re- residual founder. So that that person could go through the process over the subsequent 12 months of believing in the business sufficiently to continue. Because as you said, if you're ever put in that position, which touch wood, you're never put in that position corporate wise, and I'm never put in that position, that's a very, very lonely place to be. Pretty amazing to then get it through to a position where it's selling for multiple tens of millions of dollars only f- only for five, six years later. It's pretty astonishing, but it just shows that it can be done. Yeah, I mean, I mean certainly we, we, we do see these examples, but there's obviously way more goes behind, behind the scenes than I think, I, I think we understand. So, in terms of you know, you, you've had this sort of, sort of success. What sort of lessons have you taken away from this? And maybe it's always dangerous to draw lessons from successes, and maybe it's the failures you should draw learnings from. But Mary had an amazing experience, Brian, where um, where we we received notice of the successful exit, which which you know it's generated, uh, we believe, over five million pounds worth of of gains for a number of investors you know connected with our operation so eis and non-eis investors um but it is generated you know five six times that for the wider pool of the shareholders in that company we received notification of that the same week as we received notification of another business in the healthcare space which after eight years of of trading and at times having been far far more successful and looking like it had far more promise to go all the way than the one i was just talking about that exited um, unfortunately, that it, it after eight years had just been it, it could not continue any longer in the face of the industry challenges within the food industry around things like costs of supply, ab- lack of affordable labour, cash flow uh, restrictions around having to pay up front for manufacturing to be carried out in factories in the UK and in Europe, actually. So, you know, there is the yin and the yang, all right, of the investing spectrum. Yeah. So do you, in terms do you, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, um, no, I was going to give you a contrast in the okay, learnings. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think I think it's really relevant. So you can actually see some pointers in, in, in things that the company that did not make it chose to do that were complete polar opposites of what the company that did make it chose to do. Okay. Both of them were businesses that started with two founders and then appointed one investment director after their first seed round. The one that has now exited successfully then went on with our encouragement and advice to appoint a chairman, chairperson that happened to be a, a chairman of their business approximately two and a half years into their existence. And that chairperson became a very important figurehead and bridge between the CEO and founder, who at times had some challenging moments in terms of wanting things to happen in the business that weren't necessarily what the shareholder base really wanted to happen at those sorts of times. 
He acted as a bridge between the founder and the shareholders. And more importantly, he acted as one of the figureheads when they were going and talking to potential new investors and gave a lot of confidence to new investors. Contrast that with the one that didn't make it, who were encouraged to bring a fourth board member and an NED from their industry onto the board from about late 2015. So from about 18 months into their journey, when they filed for liquidation, you know, protection recently, it's still the same three directors that it's always been. So to put it another way, in the subsequent six years after they were encouraged to appoint and an industry experience specialist who has been involved in buying and selling companies and growing companies in their space, they still had not even appointed one extra board member. Whereas by the time the exit happened on the successful company, their board had grown at its height. It had six people on it. Uh, of those six people, only one remained who was there, sorry, two remained from when it had originally grown to a six-person board. So they had rotated people onto the board. They had brought in expertise from, in their case, they brought in a US adv advisor at one point. They took investment from a US company. So, so point number one is grow your board, refresh your board, get the right sort of skills onto your board. As you scale, you should need different skills. Don't be too proud or think that you've got it made or, or avoid those discussions. Do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because in the last episode of the podcast, one of the learnings that one of the guests suggested was he, what he'd learned most was the importance of appointing a chairman. So yes. that really totally corroborates what you're saying. Is that Across our 30 companies, Brian, I'd say the five of them that are really are flying, uh, including the one that exited, but a couple of others that are going to have very, very large valuations very soon. And we, we just know because we've seen some of the papers that are going to confirm it. They've all appointed chairpersons. And they were all chairpersons who brought something other than money and brought something other than just either like industry knowledge. They brought a combination of industry knowledge, maybe a bit of money, but that wasn't really the point usually. But also, more important than all of that, they were a name that meant something in the circles that those businesses were then going to be on the fundraising and investment trail for some years to come. It, it added so much credibility and credence. And I don't just mean window dressing. They actually fundamentally have added value to the businesses. So, you know, these are names like Fundamental VR, Free Market FX, um, MedicSpot, various others that we're involved with. So, yeah. so yeah. all right. So, so, so that's the first up. learning. Next yeah, learning. Yeah, OK. So I think next learnings is about the point I made earlier about jumping on a plane. Mm -hmm. All right. You're only going to be able to exit a company for tens of millions of pounds if you've been able to grow it in markets beyond the UK. Mm-hmm. And you need to be a long way down the journey of having grown it in those markets if you're going to be able to achieve that. And that essentially means not necessarily jumping on a plane to Australia on the whim of someone who fancies taking you for coffee to talk about your lovely business. But it does mean jumping on a plane if U US is a market that's relevant to your sector, as it definitely is in the tech space and the education space in general. That means being prepared to go and spend a week over there at least once a year, maybe twice a year, and trying to meet as many people as humanly possible in that space, because interesting things come out of it. And if I had to contrast these two businesses again, in terms of a learning, the one that did not make it were still resisting suggestions that they should come from Kent and Sussex, where they each lived, up to, at the very least, London, and spend the occasional day and two days and three days taking the pulse of the investment landscape in our greatest, biggest city, our international city, they were still resisting that many years into the life of their business when it was too late. And what I mean is resisting is people are at different stages in life. But, you know, people talk about lifestyle businesses. They assume it means it's a business that you just dabble in on your spare time and you run your lifestyle. But you just... No, 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 no. Lifestyle business can mean it's the thing that you think you're giving 70 hours of your week to. But actually, when it really comes to push to shove about put yourselves out there and go meet people that you don't even know you need to meet. You kind of default going, no, 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 I can do all of this from my laptop. That's okay. I, I'll get to them on LinkedIn. I can reach them, you know, through a cold reach out. If I really, and also if they really liked us, they'd be interested in us. So the difference is that the other business happened to be located in London, but more importantly, the CEO and various other members of their business went international 
early and did it and really did it and meant it. So they had a junior guy in his 20s. It doesn't always mean the founder. They had a guy in his 20s, Cambridge graduate, okay, BD role. And through various reasons connected with other family members, he actually quite wanted the, the chance to be spending some time over in Singapore, Malaysia from time to time. And so they made that happen. But if he'd not been that person, they would have found someone who was the person who was going to make it happen. What a contrast. One of them is prepared to go international and travel and meet and take a meeting and things grow from it and partnerships grow. And that's how they ultimately got to sell a majority stake in the business, Brian, is because they were at a conference in the US and someone really liked their business and said, you should meet this other person. And that ultimately led to a merger with that other person's business a year or two later, which ultimately led to then a US investor going, I like the look of this merged business. This is exactly the sort of business that I want to be able to invest 20, 30 million dollars into and take to being a half a billion pound company. Contrast, you kind of end up with, you know, people sitting in southern Sussex and Kent, you know, I'm not really, no, we're trying to avoid coming to London if we can help it. Well, we sort of did that earlier in our career. Not great. With hindsight, okay? Uh So that's the second big learning, right? You've got to roll up your sleeves and really be getting on with it. And then I think the third bit is how you use intermediaries and how you actually leverage those who are prepared to back your business and invest into it. So essentially, everyone who ever put money into the exiting business over the years did so because they went and met the founder, spent time with them, and nearly always had something that they could add value and bring expertise too. So that became kind of a condition for if people were going to be allowed to invest, they had to have something else in the pot other than just money. So maybe they would be able to connect you with relevant international businesses who might be interested. Maybe they could connect you with content owners who had really cool bits of library of content that had no idea that they could be getting their content onto this particular platform. By contrast, it with the other business did get two or three people to invest in them who were potentially strategically quite interesting. Okay, there's people who are very senior a couple of uh, well-known big international food brands and so on and so forth. But when you'd say, well, you know, have you then met them? Yeah, well, we met, we went and met and we had a we had a coffee in a service station with that person. Yeah, they didn't seem really engaged, really. I kind of didn't come away thinking they were really able to wanting to help us. And I, you know, yeah, no, well, you know, nice to meet me. Mm, didn't really get. I mean, I cannot even begin to tell you how those with experience in this space might have perceived that meeting differently to how the relevant people in the company seem to perceive it. That is just someone getting to know you in the first meeting and working out whether or not you're really committed to what's going to happen and whether or not they're then going to, and they're waiting for you usually to say, do you want to get more involved? And how could we get you more involved? And shall we arrange to meet for breakfast in London once every two months and talk about the business? That's what you're supposed to do as the CEO stroke founder. You're supposed to push, push, push for ways to get that real expertise involved. But if you're a bit like, well, I'll wait for them to come to me, it's going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere. So anyway, there you go. There are three immediate comparison learnings. The last one then to mention, which you, you, you might find interesting, and I think people on your network will find interesting, is how you use options and other non-financial incentives. And if I told you that one of those two companies actually started the business on day one, it created an option pool of about 17% of the company and refreshed it as best they could each funding round. There's always a bit of a push and pull between investors and founders mm-hmm. when you, you know, founders assume that everyone's going to be, woohoo, I want to create another 5% option pool. No, investors are going to say, that's more well, dilution. <laughs> More dilution. What do you, and why do you actually need, oh, well, we think we might want to recruit six people and they're going to be really expensive. Well, no, like they are too expensive for you. Doesn't mean you've got to hire them. And, you know, actually as businesses evolve and they grow and people will move on from businesses, guess what? Things go back in the pot. And then the founders realise that they don't need to keep asking for more pot. Actually, the pot ends up refreshing. However, the point is they started on day one with 18% and they were able to then go and attract smart people who were prepared to take a pay cut because they believed in the mission of what was happening with the business. The other one went into liquidation. The the other one went into CVL. Still zero ESOP. They had never done it. Right. And again, you might say, well, people might be listening saying, well, this is just so obvious. What on earth are we doing investing? Uh Uh-uh. If I sat both of those groups of people down with you in 2013, 2014, and let them each outline their vision for the business and what it could be, I can guarantee more people would have thought, actually, I think I'm going to take a chance on the one 
that I've described as not having making it based on how they describe their business, their experience, what they'd already achieved, the listing they'd already achieved, the branding they'd already achieved, all of the things that they were going to go on to do. Um, it's fascinating. It comes down to operational execution, Brian. Mm. Yeah. So from an so, investor's point of view... Certainly yeah. the first time we spoke, which is probably about, you know, probably when you started the fund about four years ago, I remember this this ice cream company that you're talking about and you've yeah. been really positive on it. We are. I, I, I don't, this I, is not a reflection on us necessarily. Yeah. That's what's so fascinating. Um, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember the video clip company at all. And, and yeah, it's funny how things changed. Yeah, and that's and not they don't really you. change though, but then cycles come and go. Yeah. So stand in an investor's shoes or stand in an advisor's shoes. When a fund manager like us says to you, we're smaller, okay, but myself and the other people here and Harry are involved in the investment committee of the great and the good are involved in every investment decision. And then people, me and people close to me physically sat next to me are involved in every single board observation and so on that we do. That should be more powerful, actually, if you really cut it through than some other group saying, we've got 300 million of assets under management and 62 people in our team, and we've got 15 sales agents around the country. It's like, it's the illusion, all right, of quality because of quantity and scale. But this game that we're in is all about the ability to spot talent and as far as possible, spot those who are going to deliver operationally and execute. And those are hard to spot they are hard to spot characteristics and that is why you're right that we probably didn't dwell on one of these two companies four years ago or two years ago whenever it was we were talking because what that can people on the in the audience of the united kingdom like to hear about more often is businesses that they can identify physically touch feel might spot in the supermarket might be able to go online and go oh my my sons are vegan oh that's quite interesting i might look into that i was often more compelling to people mm. intuitively yeah and that's why crowdfunding has received millions and millions and hundreds of millions of funding for mostly b2c brands mm-hmm. some of which have gone to great things but many 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 tens if not hundreds of them will end up in a similar sort of i'm sorry it didn't quite work and we've quietly put it into a process and we've let you know that you know and so on so we do b2b put on and that is a really important part of our thesis. I don't think the word thesis was invented when we would probably think about it. We're that old. It's like B2B predominantly is where we go. And then EdTech, coming back to this kind of EdTech focus, it's not really going to be companies that are trying to sell into the UK school system because guess what? That's a really rock hard market with incredibly limiting budgets dropping every year, repeat sales, high churn. It doesn't matter if you're the best in the world at it. It's yeah. virtually, it's not impossible. Nothing's impossible. Yeah. And, so, and, if, so, and, if, so and if you do happen to crack it, presumably you, you, you're in and there's a bit, you know, whatever. You know. So goes the story. But, you know, touching if. on our other three or four, yeah, Maestro, right, which I said earlier, which is, you know, gives you online learning from the world's greatest educators and learners themselves. So Maestri, okay, you know, they've just evolved last month from offering individual courses from the likes of Peter Jones talking about entrepreneurship and Julia Donaldson talking about um, children's illustrating, children's writing, uh, all sorts of fascinating people like that. They've just switched to the subscription model for the first time. So they've now, look, they've been in the UK and two or three countries, they've now launched in the US, the biggest market in the world. And they've launched a subscription model where you buy a year's subscription to access all the content. And they are going through this fascinating stage at the moment where initially it appears in their data like the demand is less profound at the moment for the first few weeks of SVOD, that they call it SVOD, subscription video on demand, that it was under there, you can buy one course from one expert. Because when people go onto their website, they're still at the moment, the people who go on are going there looking for a course because that's what they've been encouraged to do mm-hmm. for the first 18, 21 months of the company. And they don't think, wow, I, for an only an extra 30 quid, I could have access to the entire platform of content. Wow, what a bargain. But the moment people are going on, they're thinking, I'm probably prepared to spend 80 quid on a course. Oh, I don't know that I want 11 other lessons from other on things that I'm not interested in. So there is this whole evolution of any company that goes on. But in EdTech, it's, it's equally true, which is there is an element of education, no pun, but there's an element of educating your end target audience into what it is you do and why you do it. And coming back to the video clips one, if they'd started as a B2T, 
if you've, if you've ever heard that expression, business to teachers, <laughs> if they'd started as that, two things would probably, three things would probably have happened, which fortunately didn't happen because they didn't start like that. If they started like that, they might well have been able to find a, a real serious big ticket VC investor who might have been giving them $10 million at launch because in theory, the size of the market is so much larger. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I can pretty much guarantee, though, that they would have probably been bust within three years because they would have then gone on to discover that it takes 10 years, let's say, to educate that market mm -hmm. of teachers to be willing. Yeah. And in 2014, guess what? Most teachers were not in the mindset of going, I tell you what, I'll just spend my own $5 this month and recharge my school. And if they ask me why, I'm going to show them this amazing platform and how it's enhanced my ability to teach video and so on and so forth in my lessons. Yeah, they would never have dreamt of doing that in 2014 because we've got to remember it's not just pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's like pre-GDPR. It's pre-everything that we've come to know in the last few years. Um, so much better to pick a space and a market that you can move your way into, make big wins. When you make the wins, they are step change wins. Landing Pearson. Yeah. In the food and drink world, it actually was true for that other business, Landing Tesco. No one else had got a dairy-free product in that space, in the frozen space into Tesco. But it also shows that sometimes the more apparently stratospheric the win, potentially it is it can be slightly illusory as to what will then subsequently happen. And sometimes it's better to get a robust win that actually genuinely is for a three-year contract that is repeat revenues yeah. than to get a on paper, a classic salesperson thing. This win could have a lifetime value of six billion, well, six million dollars, right? That's classic salesman. And I want rewarding for six million dollars, please. So how much is in year one? Well, year one is a it's a pilot. And you know, we're sort of paying them for the first six months. And then if they end up selling to 50,000 people, it might be worth a million in year two. <laughs> and that is actually what I spend quite a lot of my time in in board and other meetings on some of our companies, cut, cutting through all that, right? Um, which you have to do. What else do you want to know, Brian? I'm conscious of our time. So, yeah, I'm conscious of our time as well. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions, except you've answered most of them already. So uh -huh. what I'll do is I'll, 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 select, I'll select a couple and we'll get your thoughts. So what was the most recent investment you made and why do you make it? The most recent investment we made was a follow-on investment into BBC Maestro, which is the uh, later years learning edutainment uh -huh. edtech company that I talked about before. Yeah. We made it because we'd already backed two rounds of funding. And for a business that had only been trading for 18 months, it had already got to a stage of a run rate of about three and a half million revenue per year, uh -huh. which is a tremendous achievement in a short period of time. It's hugely scalable, cross-border, cross-market etc etc we were a tiny part of that funding round it was led by one of the largest investors in the uk market who put um about six million pounds into it and we put our relatively small little bit in but that's why we invested in that and we're very excited about that as are many other people who uh, who know that business okay and last time we had you on you recommended a good book by ronald cohen i think it was yeah. about bouncing yeah. the ball any other books you'd like to suggest this time because i'm always open to new ideas Okay, so I'll, yeah, I'll change tack. I remember recommending that, and that's another one that you know Harry Hyman, who, who you know, whose success dwarfs anything that we've been able to achieve in in our ventures activity so far. I think you know he 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 also speaks very highly of that book. So I, I still encourage people to have a look at that by uh, kind of the evolution of private equity and VC investing. Um, but the one I'm going to suggest this time is one that I've just started reading, which I think has some parallels here. So it's uh, called The Islander. And it is the autobiography of a man called Chris Blackwell. And Chris Blackwell was the visionary entrepreneur who started a very small record company in Jamaica in the 1960s. Uh, but it went on to be one of the world's most successful and largest record companies, which he eventually sold in 1988, 89. It's the Island Records, I'm guessing, from the yes. name of the book. Yeah. So, so those of you listening to this who aren't into record labels and may not understand the significance of that, you probably have all listened to, you probably all bought at some stage some something by U2. Uh, you also probably had the misfortune, if you've ever visited Amsterdam, to feel like you can't escape Bob Marley's music. Even if you like Bob Marley's music, you can't really escape in there. <laughs> um, free, umpteen others, uh, old 60s bands I'm into, like Traffic and people like that. But the reason it's a fascinating book 
It's not really about the music. It's because what he actually did is he started a business in Jamaica, which was involved with providing records to jukeboxes back when jukeboxes were something from outer space in the 1950s. And this was 50s Jamaica. So there were only, he knew exactly how many jukeboxes there were on the island, scattered around the island. And he spotted an opportunity to be able to effectively import music that he could then sell to the owners of the jukeboxes in bars and clubs where they'd want to have the latest music to put onto the jukeboxes. And interestingly, his, his career has two parallels, I think, with what my role and our role is in the world of VC, in that his job was as a record company owner, eventually, to spot talent and to back that talent and to assist that talent in effectively realising their dreams, which is essentially what the venture capital industry is all about. AIS is just a wrapper for the UK. But what we're really in the business of is developing venture capital, just like in his business, it was spotting talent, growing them, turning them into worldwide superstars. And the second bit that I think is very relevant, I've said it a few times in this chat is, if you can identify the founders to back that actually think nothing of relocating their business in order to seize the opportunity that they believe is there, i.e. they're real business people who actually want to grow businesses rather than want to get themselves in tech crunch with a nice thought leadership piece which unfortunately is still quite a lot of what goes on i think in the in our world then this chap relocated his business from jamaica to london because he spotted the opportunity potentially to do something in what for him was a far bigger market he never anticipated that he was then going to go on to be owning what became one of the most revered and successful and sell it for 300 million dollars 20 years later 20 30 years later but I think there's a lot of salutary stories in that. Anyway, it's a great read. The other thing is he's a very exciting man who lived a very interesting life. Mm. So, for example, his mother was supposedly the inspiration for Ian Fleming's naming of his characters in some of the James Bond books, ah. including arguably the most famous assistant of them all, who I won't say her name, but anyone who's watched Goldfinger will know the yes. name that I'm alluding to, was supposedly his nickname for this chap's mother. So it's a cracking social history of culture in the last 50, 60 years. It's a brilliant book. I really commend it to all your listeners. Excellent. I shall add it to the list. It sounds fascinating. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing in Nexus, where should they go? We have a website, which is www.scaleupfund.co.uk. On there are little profiles of the 16 companies in the fund so far. It tells you when our next close is, which is a soft close at the end of August, but every month because we're evergreen. And it gives you a bit more colour on our committee, of which there are eight people. Six of them are non-Nexus people. It's one of our unique selling points. They are an amazing investment advisory committee, and that helps us make good decisions. So that's the place to go, mm -hmm. or you can reach me or any of my colleagues very easily via all of the details that are provided on websites and elsewhere. Excellent. So thank you very much for coming back on, Matthew. It's been a pleasure to talk with you again, and very insightful as well, even better. Well, thank you. You know, and we don't talk about numbers all that often, mm. but it's very gratifying when you have investors who put in the region of a million quid into a company and then they're able to realise gains of five million or more. And it's even better if you're a tax person who understands some of the elements of EIS mm -hmm. and, you know, you're able to stand up and say, wow, we can take a business on that journey. And we do think more and more investors out there and advisors should like that story. Mm -hmm. So let's hope that we have more conversations in the future, Brian. Let's hope so. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks, Brian. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.